Revelation chapter 8. We're going to be spending all of our time today in Revelation chapter 8, chapter 9. While you're turning there, I want to read to you a verse we read last week. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, there's a debate among those who study the book of Revelation as to what constitutes the breaking of the seventh seal. There's a, a large school of thought that actually believes that the breaking of the seventh seal is the release of the trumpets. In other words, the content of the seventh seal are the seven trumpet judgments at which we will be looking today. But I'm, you know, a little bit weird. I think you guys know that already. And I kind of fall in a school of thought that the breaking of the seventh seal is something different. Let's make sure we understand the drama and the logic of everything so far. Revelation chapter 6, we have uh, the breaking of the seals, and we have taken the breaking of the seals to represent all of Christian history, pre, if you're familiar with this kind of language, pre-tribulation history, and what the church has gone through and what the church has endured in a fallen world, both in the struggle of just living in a fallen world and also the opposition of those opposed to Christ. And with the breaking of the fifth seal, the martyred of Christendom throughout all of Christian history cries out to God, and they say, when are you going to do something about this? And then with the breaking of the sixth seal, we see these cosmic uh, manifestations signaling that the judgment of God is nigh, that it is approaching. Uh, symbols and imagery used from the Old Testament to talk about something called the day of the Lord, not meant to understand those things actually happening in the skies. We're just simply being told using Old Testament language that the day of the Lord, the day of judgment is at hand. And then there's an interlude. That interlude starts with the people of the earth cowering in fear, anticipating the judgment of God, asking dramatically who can stand in the face of that kind of judgment. And the answer to that is Revelation 7. We see the people of God can stand, those who have been sealed by him, those who have, those who have his mark on his head. What we are being told is that the people of God, the church, are those that can withstand the judgment. And then comes the breaking of the seventh seal, and we get this silence. I think that silence is the content of the seventh seal, which leads us to ask, okay, well, what does that silence represent? Well, I had an idea. I was waxing eloquent about it in our little teaching meeting where we all get together and we kind of hammer through some of the details of the text. I thought that silence represented the fact that God had pronounced judgment. We see in the breaking of the sixth seal, judgment is coming, and then a line is crossed and the judgment has been pronounced and it is coming. That's what the silence represents. Man, I was going in the Old Testament. I was showing how you can see dramatic silence taking place indicating that God is coming. Nobody was buying it. Dr. Tracy McElhatton spoke up, gave an illustration to a bunch of men that sealed the deal for me. Here's the deal. She said, guys, when we're wrestling through all this, she said, if you're ever in a discussion with your wife, arguing with her, when she gets quiet, is that ever a good thing? And we thought, well, no. And she says, do you know what she's doing? She's judging you. When she's quiet, you have been judged. The line has been crossed. There's no turning back. And all of the guys go, well, clearly Derek was right at that point in time. So we really do. I do believe that the content 
of the, of the seventh seal represents the decree that judgment has come, that the patience of God has ended, that the line has finally been crossed. And at that point, it is by my reckoning of things that the beginning of the great and final judgment of God, known popularly as the Great Tribulation, begins. And in the vision that unfolds and runs through chapters 8 and 9, we learn three things about the character of God's judgment. This is very important stuff for us to grasp, especially this first one. Three characteristics of God's judgment seen in Revelation 8 and 9. Number one, God's judgment is just. It is just. Look at verse 2 of Revelation 8. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Now, the seven angels mentioned here aren't mentioned in any other biblical text, and so any effort to try to identify them and give them names is purely speculative. But the meaning of the vision as a whole is really very clear. The judgment that is about to take place, we are being told here, is in response to the prayers of God's people throughout the centuries. Remember the breaking of the fifth seal. God, how long? That's a prayer that has been lifted up before God. For centuries, we have seen in previous weeks, God's people, the church, have endured hardship because they exist in a fallen world and in a world that is opposition to Christ and therefore in opposition to them. And they have been targets of persecution. So how long, they cry, how long? This is their prayer. And we see in the imagery here that that, that prayer rising up before God is mingled with smoke, the smoke of incense, which is an image of God's people having their prayers accentuated or made more fragrant to God. In other words, the prayers lifted up from the heart of the people are being intercepted and accentuated and optimized as they are brought before God. This reflects biblical teaching. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul writes, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep to understand. Meaning what? Meaning that any time we pray, our words by themselves are ineffective, but they're intercepted by the Spirit of God and perfected in his ears. So the overall point being made in the image that I just read from Revelation 8 is that what is about to unfold is God's response to the injustice that the people of God have experienced throughout their entire existence. It is God's just response to a fallen world. Now, what do we mean when we say God is just? Well, I think the When we say that God is just, 
We are saying that God acts in ways that are consistent with his holiness. And in order for God to be consistent with his holiness, there has to be a reckoning for sin. Now, for believers in Jesus, that reckoning for sin was accomplished in the death of Christ because our sin has been properly judged, dealt with in the death of Christ. God has been just in his response to sin in the lives of believers, just in that he properly punished sin, but also just in that because that sin and its mark against us has been wiped out with the death of Christ, we have been reconciled or made right with him. This is why Paul says in the book of Romans that God is the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He has justly judged our sin in Christ's death and justified us in his sight that comes through that same Death, But for those who have not surrendered themselves to Jesus, for those who have not brought their lives underneath the shelter that is the death of Christ, sin remains to be dealt with. Were God not to deal with that uncovered sin, God would be failing to act in a way that is consistent with his holiness And therefore, God, by choosing not to deal with the sin that has not been covered by the death of Christ in the life of believers, would be diminishing his own glory. And so there does come a day where the holiness of God requires that sin not dealt with in the sheltering blood of Christ be dealt with. With And when that day comes, God will be just, God will be right, God will be justified in doing what he does. Now, I, I cut my teeth preaching to a, a small group of southerners out in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. And anytime I'd talk about God being just and judging sinners, everybody would go, amen. They just cut loose on that. But we're about to see there's no reason at all to be happy about what comes. Do not let this spirit of the age, which says it's okay for a Christian to hate the world, to infect your thinking and cause you to cheer on what's about to happen. Is God just in doing what he does? Absolutely. But it should grieve us and it should wake us up because what we're about to talk about, symbolic though the imagery is, is real. Character of God's judgment, number one, it's just. But now moving into the blowing of the trumpets themselves, we learn that God's judgment is material. And by that I mean it will take place in the physical world, that it will affect the created order. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 7 of Revelation 8. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And then the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea 
died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. The third of the waters became Wormwood and many of the people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the night might be kept from shining. A third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. First, what with all the thirds? Remember, it's, it's a symbolic way of saying that while this is global, it's limited. Not everyone will die. Not not the entire world loses its ability to sustain life. That will come. That comes with the bowls. But right now we're in a period of time of tribulation. This is the beginnings of God's actual decree of judgment. The thirds just represent limiting. But this calls us to remember that these are visions. These are not newsreels. These are not PowerPoint presentations showing pictures of what is actually going to physically take place. These are symbolic representations of what the end will be like. I therefore think it is a mistake for us to press the details, the details in these visions to be manifested specifically in the real world. In other words, I don't speculate about the possibility of some global thunderstorm as a result of the first trumpet or some kind of volcanic super eruption as a result of the second trumpet or some kind of meteor impact or nuclear strike as a result of the third trumpet or the dimming of the light reaching the earth as a result of a volcanic eruption or a nuclear winter as a result of the nuclear strike or as a result of the blowing of the fourth trumpet. I do believe that all of these things are meant to be taken as symbolic representations of the truth that God will unleash plagues on the created order during that time of tribulation. They are meant to be taken as symbolic, actually flagged by the text itself. For instance, we see in the blowing of the first trumpet and comparing it with the blowing of the fifth trumpet, in the first trumpet, all green grass is destroyed. But with the blowing of the fifth trumpet, the demons released are told not to harm the grass of the earth. Well, why would they even need to say that if all of it had literally been destroyed in the blowing of the first trumpet? These are symbolic representations. We're not meant to press the details into real-world application. We are instead to understand that they are picturing for us the kind of thing that will happen. Happen. And the kind of thing that will happen is that when, when history begins to unravel is that the world, the created order, will undergo incredible affliction and it will impact everyone. They're actually these things that we are talked about specifically, that are talked about specifically in the blowing of the first four trumpets, are meant to call our minds to something else. And that something else is found in the Old Testament. And the plagues of Egypt prior to the Exodus. When God judged Egypt, he did so with a devastating thunderstorm that wrecked the agricultural world of Egypt. He turned the Nile red, resulting in an inability to drink from it, and a massive die-off of life in the Nile. And he caused darkness to descend on the land of Egypt. We see all of those things, don't we, in the first four trumpets of our text today and the original readers who were Christians from a Jewish background would have immediately seen the connection. 
they would have immediately said, I get what he's saying. He's saying, like unto Egypt and what happened there and the real-world physical havoc that was created there, the great tribulation will be. Now, I think it's important, again, for me to say that what happened in Egypt were real material-world catastrophes. I believe that they really happened. And I, we, I believe we are being told that there will be real material-world catastrophes visited upon the world in the tribulation. But whether there are global thunderstorms or meteors or volcanic or volcanoes or nuclear winters is actually beside the point. The point is that when God brings his judgment on the world during the tribulation, the world upon which we depend for our sustenance will be catastrophically stricken. And there is another point being made with this connection to the Exodus, I believe. Just as the plagues of Egypt preceded the Exodus of God's people from slavery, tribulation plagues will precede the Exodus of God's people from the earth. Now, it's important to note that during the plagues of Egypt, Israel experienced some of that hardship. They were protected miraculously from some of it, but they experienced some of it as well. But the ultimate judgment that came upon the nation of Egypt with the firstborn uh, dying at the, at the hand of God, at the judgment of God, they were spared from by the blood. And just as those who are alive during that time of horrific judgment, a fearsome time to be alive, will experience some of that hardship, will be in a world that is collapsing around them, the full effect of that they'll be protected from. God has sealed them. And when it comes to final judgment, that will pass over them completely because of the sacrifice of God in Christ Jesus. Which brings us to the final characteristic of God's judgment seen in the vision of the seven trumpets. We've learned that God's judgment is just. We've learned that God's judgment is material, that it'll take place in the real world. And finally, we see that God's judgment is supernatural. Jump to Revelation chapter 9, look at verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from that shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now jump to verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying, the sixth angel... Uh, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire, and of sapphire, and of sulfur. And the heads of their horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. 
By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke, sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For the tails are like the serpents with heads. By means, uh, and by means of them, they wound. Now, that text tells us that we are to process the judgments of trumpets five and six differently from the trumpets of one through four. The closing verses of chapter eight tell us that the first four judgments are different in character from the last three. There's a separation, if you want to go back and read it, between describing one and describing the other. And what separates them is their very nature. The first four trumpets dealt with the created order, dealt with the material world. describes for us two nightmarish scenes with wild images in what I just read to you, and they are clearly meant to portray not physical reality, but spiritual realities. In the very first verse we read, a star falling from heaven is an image of Satan, an image which Christ himself uses in Luke 10, 18, and his opening of the pit is clearly meant to describe the unleashing of spiritual forces, of demonic forces. The difference between their work in the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet is easy to identify. The demonic plague of the fifth trumpet inflicts physical anguish, and the demonic plague of the sixth trumpet inflicts Death. Now, I'm not going to spend time today trying to unpack the meaning of all the nightmarish details that we see here. Do you know why? Because no one knows. No one knows. And anybody who tries to figure out exactly what that kind of demonic spiritual onslaught will look like always 100% of the time you can book it looks silly. Silly. When I was a little boy growing up in 70s heyday end times weirdness, I would stand in the grocery store with my mom, Safeway, Tahlequah, Oklahoma. While she was paying for her groceries, there would be a book rack of Christian books Right there where my hot little hand could reach it every time was Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. Who, who here has heard of that wonderful book? A few of you, all right? The rest of you, please don't look for it, all right? I'll tell you why you don't look for it. I would open that book, and I'd read it, and he would say, well, this means this, and this means this. I remember, I kid you not, I remember one time reading in one of those end-time books that this whole thing with, with, a, uh, with a, uh, a head that looks one way and a tail that wounds was an Apache helicopter. Like John had ever seen an Apache helicopter. And if he did, do you think he'd describe it like a locust or a squirrel? No, he wouldn't. So I'd read all these things in Hal's book. And think, well, that's what that's going to be. And then how'd have to write another book saying what I really meant was. And then he'd have to write another book saying, well, what I really meant was. And finally, it occurred to me, maybe Hal's just, you know, guessing and writing books. We are not meant, I think, as you just read the plain language of the text, to press these details 
into saying John saw something that he interpreted as a locus in the physical world. He's not. He's seeing a spiritual reality. He's seeing the reality that the tribulation will unleash demonic forces that will rain misery and death upon those living on the earth except, except upon the people of God. As we learned in verse 4, they are shielded. And again, because these were Christians from a Jewish background, they'd have got, okay, well, Israel was shielded from some of the plagues of Egypt as well. One of the authors whose take on the book of Revelation I really appreciate wrote this. Believers will endure the tribulation that comes from a world controlled by a different set of values, but they will never be touched by the wrath of God. Their protection is not physical but spiritual. Locusts from the abyss will be unable to harm them, and life-destroying cavalry will sweep by, leaving them intact. As God protected his people in Egypt's plague, preserving them and bringing them out at the end, God will protect his people in the final plagues. It does not mean that there will not be hardship. It does not mean that we might not be forced to take a life-or-death stand for our faith someday. It simply means that we have learned the words of Jesus to not fear the one who can take our life with the sword, but instead to fear, to honor the one who holds the power of eternal life and eternal death. So let's close by asking this question. What is the effect of these plagues on mankind? Surely, with Christians alive and present, if I'm right, on earth, who can point them to the Holy Scriptures to explain to them what is happening, surely, surely, there will be a great turning to God in the tribulation, right? I mean, how could there not be? But the fact of the matter is, is that there won't be a great turning to God. Not at all. Look at verse 20 of Revelation chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's look back at the plagues of Egypt for just a bit. What was their effect on Pharaoh? If you're familiar, you know that every time God did a work through Moses that brought plague on Egypt, his heart was hardened over and over and over again. We read the words, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. They turned him away from God. They didn't turn him to him. Why? Because more than just the geopolitical entity of Egypt was under judgment. The flesh and blood individuals of Egypt were under judgment. The flesh and blood person of Pharaoh was under God's judgment for rejecting God. The flesh and blood individuals of Egypt were under judgment for rejecting God. God does not just judge corporately. There's a corporate aspect. The world is judged. There are times when the church is judged. I believe personally that we're living in a time in American life right now where the church is being judged, but that's another sermon. He does judge corporately, but it's always in connection 
with individuals falling under judgment. And the time comes when the opportunity for repentance for individuals passes. Jeremiah in the Old Testament knew this. He pronounced the coming judgment of God at the hand of Babylonian armies and he wondered aloud why people would not heed his warning. This was a man, if you read Jeremiah, it's such a great book for these times. This man loved his country. He loved his people. And he said, why won't they turn? Why won't they hear what I'm saying? God, I'm being obedient and sharing and they're not listening. Why won't they listen? And then there were times he got so frustrated with it, he said, God, I want a new job. This job stinks. I want to do something else. God said, no. You keep preaching. You keep telling them. And then there came a day where God said, you can talk about something else now. You don't have to talk about judgment is coming because there's no avoiding it now. You need to talk to people about being restored to me. And when that broken realization hits him, he records these words in Jeremiah 8.20, which is one of the most terrifying verses in Scripture. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Folks, that's why today is the day of salvation. I hope you can see based on that why I have no interest at all in trying to scratch everybody's curiosity itch about the book of Revelation. Where we dive down in, was well, that a helicopter, a nuclear strike, a volcano? Who cares? None of that matters. That's not why the book is written. The book is written to Christians to encourage them when it all comes undone, God's in control. And he's going to stay true to his people. But then also there's an evangelistic purpose to it. And the evangelistic purpose is right now is a day of salvation. Right now God's grace is extended to you. How do I know that God's grace is being extended to you? Because you can hear the, the sound of grace going out in preaching in this place today. When God judges the world, he'll be right to do it. He, he, will, he will judge in such a way that the natural world will come unspooled. It will be supernatural. People will fall into a miserable spiritual darkness. But today, today, God holds out hope and mercy and grace. So if you came here today not knowing Christ as your Savior, Believing that church is a thing you do to get your life optimized. And you've come to the realization that what you need is not a new Sunday habit. I've said that over and over again. But what you need is a Savior who can save you and redeem you and make you new. Then today you have that opportunity. Give your life to Jesus who stood between you and the wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to endure it. Give your life to him. But the rest of us need to understand, if we take this seriously, this will happen. The details of it may be a mystery to us. The timing of it clearly is a mystery to us. But we read in our text today, there will come a year, a month, a day, an hour when it starts. And when God carries things out. 
And so stop praying for an open door. If you know someone's name, there's your open door. If you have a relationship with a neighbor, a coworker, there's your open door. The message on our lips needs to be the message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus saves. And, and frankly, your politics are going to send more people to hell than is ever going to help them. Stop talking about that all the time. It'll cease to matter in any of this. Tell people about Jesus. Have that be your message. And if we do that, then we'll be doing the Lord's work until he comes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.